This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 90, Epidemics, Part 2. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I'm going to be honest with you for a second. When I did Epidemics Part 1 all the way back in February, I truly did not think a Part 2 was going to happen. I figured by the time I got around to the second half of this research, this whole COVID thing would be a blip on the radar. And boy, was I wrong. So wrong. Here we are six months later, still battling the coronavirus, still trying to get under control in Georgia, and still figuring out this new way of life. And I say this with every topic, but if you go back far enough, Atlanta has dealt with an issue before. Swap out the details and the overarching themes are the same. So not only is it fascinating to see how people living a century ago handled the same worries and the same fears, but reading about historical mistakes and missteps that are also happening today, at the very least, it gives me some kind of comfort. I know that at some point in the future, this will be a distant memory, and maybe long after I'm gone, it'll make its way into a podcast. So this week, we're covering more epidemics that affected Atlanta, what they were and how we handled them. In episode 70, we covered yellow fever, smallpox, cholera, scarlet fever, and tuberculosis, but today, we're only going to talk about two, diphtheria and influenza. There was so much information about these two diseases and so many comparisons to modern issues um, that I think there's going to have to be a part three in the future, so we'll talk about the rest later. Let's start with diphtheria, which is a highly contagious bacterial infection that appears in two ways, respiratory and skin. The first starts with a sore throat and a fever, which can quickly turn into having your entire throat covered with a bluish coating that can make it impossible to breathe. Does not sound like fun. The disease first hit epidemic proportions in 1613 in Spain, and in the U.S. it was 1735 in New England. In the water and waste episode, I talked about how communities without sanitary waste infrastructure were inevitably more outbreak prone, and things like smallpox often broke out in the quote-unquote slums. The same fear has followed diphtheria, and all the way back in 1878, Dr. Logan warns Atlanta that its inadequate sewer system heightens our chances of having an epidemic. Just like all the diseases I've talked about, it's not like Atlanta never had them, except only in this outbreak. So people died of diphtheria throughout the history of the city, just usually it was in very, very small numbers and or isolated incidents. W.E.B. Du Bois moved to Atlanta in 1897, and his firstborn son, Burkhart, was born in Massachusetts earlier that year. The family was living in Philadelphia, but W.E.B. sent his wife home where he felt it was safer for her to give birth. After his son was born, he had gotten an assignment to be a sociology professor at Atlanta University, so he brings the family to Atlanta to live on the AU campus. In 1899, Burghardt fell ill with diphtheria, and his parents feared the worst. Du Bois rushes out in the night looking for one of the only three black doctors in the city that were accessible to him, since he could not get a white doctor to care for his son. All of that effort was for nothing because Burkhardt died at just 18 months old. And W.E.B. wrote about this life-changing event in his book of essays, The Souls of Black Folk. And it also impacted his fight for available health care in black communities. If you haven't listened to episode 38 about African-American hospitals, I do cover the death rate for black Atlantans and how public health disproportionately impacted them. And it didn't really get better. In 1909, Press Walker, a black man working at the creamery on Whitehall Street, was stricken with diphtheria. Walker did not have a home, 
and he's so sick that the factory allows him to lay in the horse stables. He stayed there for two days because no hospital would take him. Grady existed at the time, but they refused to take him because he was highly contagious, and no private hospital in the city was willing to do so either. This really pushed the need for an infectious disease hospital, but we'll get to that story in another episode. Around 1910, Atlanta would have its diphtheria outbreak. Three children had died in 1905, all under five years old and all neighbors. And that set the city on high alert about the infectious nature of the disease and how children can easily pass it to one another. As 48 more diphtheria cases appeared in 1909, along with 41 of scarlet fever, the city attorney issues a stern warning to parents. Send your contagious kid to school and risk a hefty fine or 30 days in the stockade. I know every listener parent out there who has dosed their kid with Tylenol before dropping them off at school is laughing right now, because if this was 1910, I would be in jail. So by October, the Board of Health steps in and adopts a resolution that establishes all children entering the school building will be getting their throats checked. And remember, I said earlier that diphtheria can present itself in your throat. So the idea was they were going to pay a few doctors, um, station them in the entryway of schools, and then catch the spread before it happened. Dr. Kennedy, the city health officer, shares that there have been 59 cases and six deaths in the last few weeks, and medical professionals are pretty sure it's all school's fault. Over the course of several weeks, doctors find 45 to 50 sick children that they were able to send home to quarantine before they could infect their classmates. And this, my friends, is where it gets interesting and familiar. The same way that parents are losing their minds and protesting virtual school in 2020, well, 110 years ago, parents were also losing their minds. Some were privately taking their kids to their family doctor, who assured them that it was nothing more than a sore throat, which I mean, it could have been just a sore throat, but it also could have been diphtheria. City leaders and doctors reiterate their statement, and they say, quote, one of the first requisites of the public school system is that the health of children and teachers should be scrupulously safeguarded. End quote. The City Federation of Women's Clubs um, also takes on the task of installing water fountains in all our city schools, and this was in order to eliminate the communal drinking cup. Yeah, the cup in a classroom where all kids ladled it into their mouths and back into the water. And this is something interesting people don't realize. Like, every time we have an epidemic in our history, we learn and we change our customs. So especially after the flu, which we'll talk about in a second, the communal drinking cup is gone. By the end of October, health officials estimate that there are 350 cases of diphtheria in Atlanta, although only 200 homes have a placard on their door. The placard was just a small sign. Usually it was red, and it alerted the public that someone in the home was carrying a contagious disease. Removing these notices was against the law, but that did not stop Lena Michael, who in 1910 ripped the paper from her front door and ended up in court over it. In Athens, Georgia, citizens were complaining about two strict quarantine rules. If you're not seeing the parallels to 2020, just listen harder. In 1912, Dr. Westmoreland resigns from the state of Georgia Board of Health, with accusations that its chair, Dr. Harris, has mismanaged the department and is not sending out enough diphtheria antitoxin, and that the samples that they do have are not sterile. Funny but not funny, the Board of Health actually had a diphtheria outbreak just a year later. So this is a good time to talk about that antitoxin, um, which is different from a vaccine. The latter are given to people to prevent a disease, but the diphtheria antitoxin was given to treat those already sick. The first antitoxin came out around 1890 as scientists began experimenting with guinea pigs and then moved on to goats and horses. And this is my very unscientific explanation, but I read that they 
inject it, a healthy animal, immunize it, and then they take the blood from it or something like that. By 1895, New York was using it to treat their outbreaks. And in Atlanta, there's news that a doctor named J.A. Summerfield has it and has successfully administered it to a few patients. So W.E.B. Du Bois was really critical of Atlanta for not having this readily available, especially to black residents when his son died. By 1914 and into 1915, the diphtheria cases in Atlanta were fading and only occurring in smaller contained outbreaks. There's actually a push from Dr. Kennedy to address the racial health disparities in the city. And of course, this is presented from the stance that white people need to protect themselves by protecting their maids, cooks, and butlers. The idea being that black help could bring disease into your home. And all of that was rooted in the racist ideas that black people were dirty, unclean, and or carried disease. But that's a whole nother topic for another day. The diphtheria vaccine was developed in 1921, and it was widely used by the 1930s. Today, it's just one of the long list of vaccines that we get as children. The Spanish flu has been talked about a lot in the last six months, but there's a lot to discuss and a lot of comparisons to be made to the present day. In general, the influenza outbreak of 1918 infected 500 million people worldwide, which was a third of the world's population. Deaths are estimated at 50 million total, with 675,000 in the U.S., 30,000 people who lived in Georgia, and almost 900 people who lived in Atlanta. In April of 1917, the United States entered World War I, and by the following April, 18 cases of influenza were reported at Camp Funston in Kansas. 100 soldiers there would end up getting sick. So you can imagine how well an international war does with circulating viruses, which is very good. What ends up happening is that the virus mutates and strengthens. And in September of 1918, we get what was called the second wave of the Spanish flu. In the same ways that COVID-19 has been called other incorrect and sometimes racist names, the Spanish flu moniker came as a result of Spain being neutral in the war and getting the brunt of bad publicity. So it started in Kansas. It started here, but we call it the Spanish flu. In Atlanta, Camp Gordon, which was in Chambly, was struck with the flu on September 18th as they were returning from a Norcross firing range. By the 20th, cases began appearing at other camps, and Brigadier General Sage placed four regiments under quarantine. They were not allowed to visit Atlanta, they were not allowed to go to the movies, they couldn't go to the camp halls, they couldn't go to dances, nothing. Also in September, the U.S. Bureau of Public Health states that there is no immediate threat in Atlanta and that people should just avoid crowds and remember to sneeze into your handkerchief. Meanwhile, the situation at Camp Gordon is not improving, and by October, there are over 1,900 cases reported. An urgent call for nurses is put out, and 75 women from Atlanta immediately respond. The Red Cross and Atlanta Registered Nurses Club work to get more volunteers. Atlantans collect gifts for the affected soldiers, and the Rotary Club on Peachtree Street acts as a collection spot. All of the downtown department stores donated goods, and the young ladies of Agnes Scott and Washington Seminary wrote notes. When they delivered the gifts to the soldiers, it was described as Christmas in October. Just a week later, the chief surgeon at Camp Gordon called for 100,000 face masks, quote, if possible, before midnight, end quote. And the women of Atlanta get to work. With small strips of cheesecloth, they have three workrooms all along Peachtree Street that open at 9 a.m. So women from church groups, auxiliary groups, anybody that wasn't a working woman, so typically women of leisure, were filling in here to sew masks. By October 8th, Atlanta city leaders had started to take things seriously, and Dr. Kennedy, we talked about him earlier, declared the situation extremely serious. 
And here's one of the first similarities between COVID-19 and the Spanish flu. In 1918, federal officials left specific measures up to state governments. Although the U.S. Surgeon General notified health officers of each state that they should really do social distancing measures to prevent the spread. Then Georgia left its decision-making up to local municipalities. And Dr. J.P. Kennedy, again the city health officer, takes it upon himself to, quote, lock the stable before the horse was stolen, end quote. City officials saw the success of a quarantine at Fort Gordon, so there's 2,000 sick soldiers, but only 166 died. And it was strict quarantine. So city council, you know, takes note, and they order two months of a full shutdown. No movie houses, no theaters, no schools, no churches, no pool halls, no dance halls, nothing. Superior court is closed, district court is closed, um, all children are told to report to school, grab their stuff, uh, teachers, you know, preserve order as much as you can, and then work from home. Spitting in the street becomes illegal, and police chief Beavers instructs all officers to be on the lookout for anyone that might be doing that. Generally, everyone is okay with all of this. So the theater operators are compliant, um, church and school groups are making masks, and other events are being canceled. What was not being canceled, though, was the Southeastern Fair and Liberty Pageant. Churches were also stretching the boundaries um, as Christians were just kind of freaking out about the lockdown. So Sacred Heart, Central Baptist, and Calvary Methodist were some of many churches to hold open-air services. And one of the aldermans, um, I don't know which ward he was from, but he says, quote, People want to meet and pray for the end of influenza, and we have no right to stop them, end quote. With only three deaths in a week, Dr. Kennedy feels pretty good. So he kind of tells the city, everything's fine. Our main concerns right now are the shortages of doctors and nurses. Um, this is because most of them had been deployed to military camps. And of course, we can't use black nurses. It would just make too much sense. But the government had set up a training corps at uh, Emory for medical students and kind of fast-tracked them to their degrees. So how did quarantine affect Atlanta economically? At first, like I said, everything was good but that only lasted about a week or two. The city was already under a wartime power consumption limit, again, World War I, so people were generally sort of quarantined. There were rolling blackouts, shops closed early on the weekends, but wartime is also when people need distractions, and people want to go to the movies, they want to go to the theaters, they want to go to parties. Theater owners started off supportive of the ban, but two weeks later, they're not happy. Mostly they're angry that the Southeastern Fair was able to go on and that they're being unfairly targeted because they operate indoors. Now, the thing is, the fair was a big boosterism effort um, that city leaders were planning, and it directly ties into the Forward Atlanta campaign that happens just a few years later, which means there was nothing that was going to stop that fair from happening. Organizers just required everyone to wear masks, and 14,000 people packed the fair that October. After many protests by theater owners and other managers about their loss of business, city council repealed the ban on public gatherings, and city council votes 19 to 5 to reopen the city. This was October 26, so six weeks shy of the original two-month shutdown. Atlanta's theaters reported the largest crowds they had seen, and a reporter says, quote, it seemed that every theatrical performance and every movie was just a little bit better than it was before the ban and everybody was in the best of humor, end quote. Schools were a little bit more cautious and did listen to Dr. Kennedy, um, but they opened on November 4th. Similar to the issues with evictions that we have today, landlords also tried to evict tenants with Spanish flu. A soldier from Camp Gordon was evicted during his illness, and city council steps in to say, not only was this illegal, 
but it was also unpatriotic. There was an uptake in cases each month after the city reopened, all the way through the new year, but it really surged around Thanksgiving. In mid-December, East Atlanta is hit really hard, and it only has three doctors in the area, so one is retired, one's wife has the flu, and so the remaining doctor has to handle 100 calls a day. And East Atlanta at this time is part of Atlanta, so it's incorporated, but it's getting no help from the government. By Christmas, there was again a shortage of healthcare professionals, and by the end of the year, six to eight people are dying in hospitals every day. In summary, hundreds of Atlantans died, and the city took no further action. The ranges of deaths are from about 830 to 875 people living in Atlanta that lost their lives to the Spanish flu epidemic. In relation to total population, we were not one of the hardest-hit U.S. cities, but of course, if we had shut down longer and limited outdoor gatherings, we would have had fewer deaths. So there you have it, the story of diphtheria and influenza epidemics in Atlanta. Thank you guys for listening. Remember, leave a rating or a review. If you'd like to support the podcast and in turn get some extra bonus content, head over to my Patreon, which there's a link in the show notes. And there is actually another disease epidemic that few people know about that I am planning to release a mini episode on soon. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.